So Patty uh, had Charles Bashota. I've been wanting to have him on the podcast for a long time. It's uh, it's funny. He and I actually met uh, at a networking event when he was like, I don't even know if he had a, just a couple of clients. It was maybe wow. it was a while ago. It was like 2018 when he started and we were ended up sitting next to each other at a table, didn't know each other. And he's like, yeah, I just just getting into the payments industry as an attorney. And he had already been in the payments industry before. Right. And his story was so interesting. We talked about interesting. I met him right after that in around 2019. Really? A very similar experience. Okay. It was, yeah. You know, because I've been in this industry for so long and have known so few lawyers that right. when I met this new yes. lawyer, it was like, wow, not only are you in payments, but you used to sell payments. So <laughs> very, it's a very interesting journey. And we talk yeah. about visa fines and enforcement, especially around non-cash adjustments and all of mm -hmm. that kind of dual pricing, all that stuff. So, um, you know, what happens in the industry, but, but we go broader than that as well. And just talk about in general contract language, you know, spoiler alert, it's probably time to look at your agreements and see what yes. you signed <laughs> yes. and, um, and, and, you know, and look into that. So we'll talk all about that then. Um, questions from the field today. I talked about really thinking way outside the box in terms of marketing, um, education marketing, uh, PR marketing, things like that, and and specifically about a conversation I had with a, an individual agent uh, along those lines. So uh, we talk about that, and I, I thought the um, you know insiders was actually very interesting today. Patty, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it gives us some real insights on um, you know different methods of payments that consumers are preferring, and digital wallets are really taking off. Um, that yeah. that's my spoiler alert. Yep, I love it. So uh, today's episode, we're uh, you know interviewing Charles Bashota of Bashota Law. Uh, they have not paid. Uh, the company hasn't paid. He hasn't paid. Uh, you know, not an advertiser or anything like that. This is a great conversation with an industry thought leader. So let's dive in. Let's do it. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Hey, everybody. Patty and I are here today with Charles Bashota, the founder at Bashota Law. How are you doing today, Charles? I'm doing great. How are you, James? I am doing fantastic. Uh, always a pleasure when our paths cross. So, uh, you know, we're going to talk today about some of these changes uh, in visa compliance, uh, visa compliance actions, visa fines, all these kind of hot topics. But before we dive into that, Charles, I have to hear your story because I've actually not heard it before, I don't believe. So like, how did you get into this crazy industry? And then talk about your path to founding um, this this dynamic law firm for our industry, Bashota Law. Yeah, so I'm one of those accidental payments professionals, you know. Uh, like we all I are. <laughs> exactly, yeah. buddy. You know, and I, I took a gig right after college, and I didn't know what I was going to work in, and suddenly I'm working in payments, such as payment tech. Uh, this was way back in uh, 2006. And so I, I came in as a relationship manager, uh, helping them uh, push out their agent bank program to all these correspondent bank that Payment Tech was working with. So that was really where I cut my teeth in payment. Um, I was there for two years until the Payment Tech FISA re, um, first data dissolution in 2008. And I was one of those lucky people assigned to First Data. And when I went to First Data, they didn't have an agent bank program. And they look around, they're like, okay, how about you work with these ISOs? And I had no idea who ISOs are and what they do. And I spent most of my time there until I went to law school. Um, I did different roles from relationship management to business development to you know, um, various management roles. And after that, after law school, I came back, I did contract administration for First Data and started that group for third party 
compliance overseeing and making sure contracts are, are, are done fair. So I saw a lot of deals in that period of the law school for about two, three years before I decided to go out and hang out my own shingle. Uh, and basically, that's what I've been doing since 08. When I, um, uh, is it 2018 already? Holy cow. <laughs> when yeah. I first started until now. Wow. Yeah. So, so 2018 to then now 2023, you've been doing, that's when you had Bashota Law, right? Was yes. Is that right? No, that's great, man. That's awesome. That's a great story. Yeah. It's like, like Patty said, I think we're all kind of accidental payments professionals in, in our own way. You know, <laughs> it's not like I you, think you know, in you, all our, in all our interviews, we've come up with maybe one or two people who were like, oh yeah, my dad was in this business. So right, I it's a family to get thing. It. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of them yeah, it was, was, was his mother, I think. Uh, right, right. Yeah. It's like, you know, I went to my daughter's, uh, my daughter's kindergarten graduation last night and uh, the kids, as they come across, you know, the, the teacher says that, you know, she asked them what they want to be when they grow up, you know, uh -huh. no one, no one said I want to be a payments professional. Not even Quincy. No, no, no. It was, a, it, was, it was a fireman, a policeman, a doctor, you know, right. So we're, so everybody's accidental anyway. So, so Charles, I would love to get your thoughts on what have you seen, you know, the last six to 12 months, um, you know, as it relates to visa compliance action, visa fines, um, you know, there's a lot of chatter about it. A lot of, of course, is, is things of, oh, maybe this will happen. Maybe that'll happen. But what have you actually seen in the industry? What changes have you seen that have impacted ISOs? Uh, so something drastic must have happened. And and what, what I'm imagining is either a leadership decision and, um, um, at the card grants to decided to go ahead and be able to enforce these surcharge and, and cash discount programs the way they're doing now. Because um, in the last six, seven months, I'm seeing a ramp up of people who are getting fined. So this would be at the merchant level. Uh, they even went out as providing a guidance on what will be the level of the fines for each merchant incidents on surcharge is supposed to be. But in addition to that, because initially, uh, last year, it was more the acquirers and the processors that were right. trying to enforce the program. Right. But now, um, this has, is trickling down to, to the ISO level, where some ISOs now are getting fined and everything else. Now, that doesn't happen by accident, obviously. Right. Um, something must have significantly shifted. Uh, and the only thing I can think about, because these things are normally confidential, uh, is see Either the leadership just made a decision, this is what we are going to be enforcing. And, and that's why you're hearing the charter that you're hearing. And some of the fines, uh, unsubstantiated or real, are happening. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, as an attorney representing ISOs and, and sales reps, what are your biggest concerns for these individuals and companies? Um, you know, in this changing environment, you know, say over the next, I don't know, say 12 months as it relates to uh, visa compliance actions? Yeah, so the, the biggest concern is the lack of control. I think that's the, the, the single most important thing that we all have to think about. Because when you represent ISOs or agents, uh, they normally rely on a processor or uh, a super ISO that is the one who's allowing to... Right them to solicit and distribute the programs. Now, neither the agents or the, the ISOs in most cases will have a direct relationship with the sponsor bank, um, in which case it makes them almost two steps removed from what Visa, MasterCard are doing. 
yeah. and or American Express or whatever they can uh, discover, whichever card brand is going to be assessing the fine. So in that scenario, uh, a lot of the ISOs and agents are going to be operating in the dark. Um, they're just going to have to take the word of what their provider is telling them is happening. Mm. Uh, and they have to rely on a, a veracity of the information they're getting. Uh, in most cases, since you, you don't have first-hand information, you're hearing hearsay or second-hand information on what they have. The second thing is uh, that I'm more concerned about is by the time I come in with this deal, these people already have a relationship. Um, they already have contracts in place. And I'll say about 99% of these contracts, they are just the payee. That means they're getting paid of the residuals relying on a, you know, their super ISO, the process of collecting the fees and passing them. So in most cases, if there is any sort of assessment, it just in most of these contracts, this just ends up being in a residuals. Hey, by the way, you got you have a fine of X dollar. So that control prong just continue to get worse because now uh, you're gonna get fined, but you don't have any way to fight, or you can fight with one arm behind your back because uh, they already took your money saying you owe them the money. So those are the biggest challenges. And I think that the contractual issue is very significant. Uh, And in most cases, the negotiation positions are also upside down just because it's ISO and the agent comes into this play where they just take the contract and majority of the time, they'll just hear words like, I can't do anything about that. It is what it is sign here, sign here, they're none. So they're always walking in these deals with uh, very, very upside down legal protection. All the more reason they need somebody like you. I I, I like to think so, like like me or other, you know. Or for people that, I mean, but the fact is, you know, we, we joke that nobody gets into payments accident, I mean, on purpose, but also nobody goes, very few people go to law school planning to specialize in payments. Yeah, I, I agree with you, buddy. I think I'm an there. anomaly when it comes to that because I think most of my colleagues that uh, I've met, they, it just happens where they came into the industry, but right. I was in reverse where I was right. like, this right. is what I want to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I agree. I agree. So, yeah, and we I want to circle back to the contract terms and all of that because it, it is so crucial right now, I think, for agents and ISOs to review their agreements and to understand these things. But one of the things I wanted to get your thoughts on, Charles, and you and I had a conversation recently, and this is something you brought up that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, you know, our industry, I think for the agents and ISOs, a lot of times they don't actually feel like they have any any relationship, legal or otherwise, with the card brands. It's kind of mm-hmm. like the card brands are floating up here in the clouds, you know, and then it's like, well, I have my relationship with my ISO. Talk about how does the the how does the card brands, how does that influence contracts all the way down this kind of cascade and to the ISO and the agent and maybe help the agents and ISOs understand how the card brands and their kind of control over the industry, how that impacts their liability and their situation and and their place in the industry. Yeah. So it's a very interesting business model uh, that we have in the U.S., uh, unlike what they have in Canada and Europe uh, when you're dealing with uh, a non-financial institution. In the U.S., we have a very, uh, I I call it strange system, and I I guess I'm qualified because I'm international, I can say that, to where Visa MasterCard only contracts with financial institutions in the U.S. So when it comes to the acquiring space, 
um, they have set up a set of rules and most of them will be public, you know, where they'll talk about some of expectations on how these financial institutions are going to be dealing with their third party agents. Now, so a third party agent is going to be any financial uh, any non-financial institution that is not a member of Visa MasterCard that has been vetted uh, to go ahead and be able to solicit and, 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 and help merchants um, submit transactions to the interchange. Now, the way most sponsor banks would work in this space when they decide to become acquirer sponsors, uh, in most cases, they delegate their responsibility to whoever the acquirer is. So the acquirer, this normally would be the non-financial institution. Sometimes you may say it's uh, processors like Global or Pfizer, or it could be the supervisors that you have. So all the big names out there that they are registered directly with bringing their own bin, they're all going to be acquired. And in most cases, think of them as a non-bank party to the merchant agreement. Now, when part of the requirement for this sponsorship, uh, for this you know, these acquirers, is that they agree to enforce any rules. So this would be regulations, whatever it is Visa MasterCard come up with, they're gonna enforce them as if Visa MasterCard is enforcing them. So this relationship is like, it's symbiotic, but in most cases it's very far removed from the agent because by the time you get to the agent, you have two steps. You have a member that has agreed to be responsible for the enforcement of the rules and then you have uh, an acquirer that agrees to enforce the same rules, and this is what you have to play with. But they don't have an say. So today, an acquirer, yes, they may have an access to Visa, Mastercard if um, their sponsor bank allows them to, if they have their own individual bin or anything else. But there are some who don't have that direct access, so they have no relationship at all. Uh, so. In most cases, that's how they operate in the U.S. Because if there's a fine or something comes in, actually, those fines don't get levied to uh, they get levied to the merchant or they get levied to the ISO, but it always go through the bank. And in most cases, when they assess it, it's going to be scant information of what happened. They'll tell you the assessment. If you want to find out how the assessment happened, you are never going to get it without a confidentiality with them. And even with that, is they're not going to be very forthcoming in helping you, you decipher what the rules are. They'll just cite the rules that uh, you're violating. Uh, and so it's a very nice relationship for them because they could be judge, jury, and executioner right. unless otherwise you have, you know, um, uh, merchants that are mad enough, they're pissed off enough to say, you know what, I'm going to go to court. But not everybody is going to be able to uh, to, to fight. Or to go to court, right? right? Yeah. 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 No, it's a, it's a really good point. And I think, you know, um, it's been interesting for me, Charles, like, you know, the last six months, there was a few different kind of moments in time where I thought, Hey, I think there's some companies that are ready to push back a little bit. And then it was like, nope, (laughs) you know, nobody really wants to get in Visa's crosshairs. And I don't blame them. I mean, Visa is not exactly a company you want to make your enemy lightly. (laughs) Right. Not only are they big and have a lot of money, they have a huge legal team. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they they have have some of the best lawyers in Washington on return on retainer. So, yeah. I mean, and, and, and in most cases, really, you have to have somebody who's tenacious enough to say, you know what, I've had enough. 
Right. And even with them, you have to jump through hoops of mm -hmm. civil procedures to even get to them because number right. one, you don't have a contract with them. So right. why are you suing them? Because, you know, so that's no relationship one of the challenges. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, it's it's so interesting to me how they the the visa's influence, right, permeates through all these legal agreements, but yet there actually isn't this real kind of legal relationship. It's just so so like you mentioned, strange, I think is the right word. So with with all of this in mind, Charles, and with what you mentioned earlier, as you think about the fines that are coming down and the the compliance actions and, and, and all of this, and there's a lot of variables here. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of merchants that are already actively processing in a way that Visa has now said is, is non-compliant. Um, you know, when you think about agent agreements that you've read, ISO agreements that you've read, can you give us any specific examples of maybe some red flags or some general concepts that when you look at an agreement, some things that maybe you're looking for and why some of that language might concern you? Maybe it's stuff the agents think, oh, this is boilerplate, but actually it's maybe a bit of a problem. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I find and I try to drill to my clients a lot um, is... In most cases, when you're dealing with ISOs and agents, they tend to pay attention to the business points a lot, rightfully so, because you want to know how right. I get paid. Um, can you take away my money? But very little attention is uh, is getting paid to the what you are calling the boilerplate language. So this would be things like the indemnifications, uh, you know, confidential informations, uh, you know, all this stuff that normally sounds you call it legalese. But it's a single most important part of the contract because this is where they're allocating the risk. Now, in most cases, when you're looking at these boilerplates, uh, majority are written one way. So basically, it's you agreeing to these things to the person who you're submitting deals to, but they don't give you uh, uh, a, a supporting part of this equation. So in that reality, uh, when something comes up, they can easily point, like the indemnification is always the most popular one, right? You indemnify us that you're going to operate by law, whatever it is, or uh, on fines and whatever we incur from a third party based on your action. And they will point you submitting deals to them is an action that made them incur the fine. Now, because you didn't spend so much time arguing and requiring them to indemnify you that their program is actually going to be abiding by the rule. And if they get fined, that's their assessment. In most cases, you're out of luck, right? Uh, they have things like offset rights where they can take money that they inquire, they inquire as fines from your residuals, uh, you know, and you won't get paid until that is recovered. So when we're thinking of that is, these are very important language. Uh, and I always say that it's not because uh, I'm an attorney first. I think that it makes prudent and, and business sense to make sure that any contract you're going to enter that has to do with you getting paid is reviewed by a person that is going to be looking at your protection. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't, then you are not going to be surprised or you will be surprised when the gotchas come in. But at that time, it's too late. Mm -hmm. Because now your scenario would be you can disagree. Yes. And as lawyers, they're very creative lawyers that even if you sign a bad contract, you can find a way to fight you. But fighting means it's also going to cost you additional money to try to enforce your rights. While you could have spent at least a fraction of that money up front to get your protection so that you don't have to go ahead and figure out different ways to fight for your rights after the fact. 
Yeah. And, and I know uh, some of the things I hear in most cases is, yeah, I own the merchant relationship. When things go south, I can just move accounts. So like, yeah, that doesn't help so much just because you are still, they also know the same thing. So they're ready to come after you either way. So you always have to think about all those nuances. Right, right. Yeah, I think I think one of the most important things here, you know, big picture when you zoom out, Charles, is, you know, these agents need to understand, especially if they have a portfolio of, you know, cash discounting, non-cash adjustments, um, you know, whatever, right? Um, dual pricing. They need to be thinking about the fact that there are visa fines that can occur. Maybe, you know, it's like it's like car insurance, right? Like maybe you don't get in a car wreck, you know, but um, if they come after your your super ISO, your ISO with these fines, um, I think what you're saying is the vast majority of agreements that you have seen that are signed by agents and ISOs without legal advice tend to allow the upstream partner to either pass those fines directly down or more commonly hold residuals to cover those fines um, and so that would be, a, I think, what you're saying is a is a concern, right? Yes, it, it, that is. And, and in most cases, because you are not holding, they want to hold you responsible to go ahead and be responsible for what you do. But right. since you didn't negotiate, you are not holding them responsible that if they have an issue with Visa MasterCard, that's their issue because you want their program to be the one that doesn't contravene Visa MasterCard rules. Right, one, right. one other question I want to ask about the, the legal side of this, I think it's interesting. You know, one of the other really common things that I'm sure is probably a bit frustrating for an industry attorney such as yourself is that oftentimes these ISOs and agents are signing these like sub, 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 sub agreements um, where they're, they're, you know, it's like all these agreements are saying, well, this is subject to the terms of this agreement. Well, this is subject to the terms of that agreement. And this is subject to the terms of the visa rules. And, you know, um, what are your thoughts on you know these ISOs that are starting to get a little momentum? They're starting to grow a little bit, and they and they they need to be thinking about this. How should they be thinking about these legal agreements in terms of finding the right partners and making sure that they're protected legally when there's all these kind of layers? Yeah, so it, with most partners, at least uh, most of the partners that uh, I normally ask my clients to take a look at. Uh, they're normally very forthcoming uh, about their agreement. So if they tell you that you are subject to this agreement, they will tell you where the agreement is. If they're telling you you are subject to the rules, they may point out where the rules are and they, they can try to hold your hands. Because ideally, I think that an ideal partner is the one that understands there is asymmetrical information base. The partner you are dealing with deals with this every day. They know what you're going to reach. So ideally, you want to be with a partner that can actually teach you and hold your hands and coach you as you are building a portfolio. That's a good partner. And in that scenario, if there's an agreement that is binding you, rather than treating it as a gotcha, then they can talk to you. They can even show you that agreement and say, OK, I'm bound by A, B, C, D, and we got to make sure we are bound by that. Uh, if you need to understand, you know, what the rules are saying, then they should be competent enough to try to help you figure that out, because that's who you need to be guiding you. They will expect you to help them sell, but the percentage of revenue they're keeping, my expectation, at least if I was an ISO an agent, I'll expect that for the money they earn from the business I'm developing, they're supposed to be my uh, sales support and compliance support and all those, at least in terms of knowledge. And I'm not saying that 
uh, they got to teach me how to be able to abide by the law, but at least show me where things are. So that, that's going to be the key things, right? Because you, you want to get a partner that actually looks at what your interests are and how they can help you achieve those goals. And at the same time, the legal relationship should not be there to go ahead and say, I, I have this as a stick, but it's just actually memorializing the arrangement of how you work together and they got to be solutional in it. Right, right. Very good advice, Charles. Very good. Okay. I know you don't have a crystal ball. In fact, I remember one time I asked that early in my career, I asked somebody to look into a crystal ball and he told me anybody who looks into a crystal ball is bound to eat glass. But, <laughs> so I don't want you to eat glass, my friend. Yeah. But I am curious if you have any other thoughts about how the industry may change and evolve over the next, say, 12 to 36 months. And specifically, you know, any actions that our audience should be aware of or start to prepare for. And, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but what you think may happen, you know. Yeah, you know. Precaution. No, I, I totally hear what you're saying, Patty, because I think that uh, industry changes uh, the spec faster than a lot of other industries. Right. And right now you hear a lot of these things to do with embedded payments uh, to be the new word. And I think, um, you know, people are wondering about B2B payments and how mm -hmm. this goes. You have a lot of money being spent um, in Silicon Valley on some other companies that invest in our financial technology space. They're pouring money into this space. What that means is, a lot of the guys who are ISOs or agents right now, they have to, number one, prepare to be adaptable just because technology is going to continue playing a very big role. Right. Um, uh, merchants are becoming more sophisticated as baby boomers are, are passing over the business to, to, to their younger kids. Mm -hmm. And these guys are expecting you to be a master at what you're bringing to the table. So if you're an agent, the days of just saying, I'm going to open a merchant account and, and it's done and dusted, I'll just answer the billing questions are gone. Now you're going to have to be a business consultant because your competitors, if you look at all the other bigger players, uh, they are coming in using payments as an experience. We are providing a business solution. We can help mm -hmm. you solve all these things. So as agents and ISOs are contemplating on growing, they have to be able to adapt not only their sales speech, their recruitment, their knowledge base to make sure they know that embedded payments are gonna play a very bigger part of our space. Uh, mm -hmm. Things like banking are no longer going away. It's actually becoming an integral part of what we have. Things like invoicing and all these other things that used to be, you know, ancillary services. Now you expect it to be a master of all of them. Uh, and in most cases, I think um, the people who are going to be very successful are the ones who position themselves to their merchants as I'm the guy who's going to help me solve my commerce problem. It's no longer just you know, uh, my credit card guy. Yeah. No, I, I sort of like a financial that. advisor almost, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, they, they look at you to tell them everything from how mm -hmm. you, you, you can help them. I mean, because solving, saving money, it, although it's really big, uh, it was big in our industry for a long time. That is no longer an issue because now you're competing with people who they're not offering saving money. They're offering saving them time, saving them, you know, all these other things that, you know, a lot of uh, businesses, small and medium businesses struggle with because they just don't have enough time. Yeah, sure. 
You know, what's interesting about that, Charles, is an interesting follow-up. You know, I was thinking as you were talking, you know, and you're, and you're absolutely right. And I think more and more the ISOs are starting to develop these strategic relationships with technology companies. And I'm just curious if you had any final remarks on this, because, you know, I think it's so crucial that they do that, right? Like that's, that's key. You got to get these relationships with, with these technology companies, but these technology companies, many of them are not really like payments companies. And so I'm wondering, are you seeing a lot of contract negotiation going on in terms of, well, I got to make sure I'm actually going to get my residual, or I've got to make sure that I've got ownership in these accounts with, you know, cause I'm, cause I'm, I'm kind of giving a portion of control over to the technology company and integrating payments there. Is that something you're starting to see kind of a, a rise in, in that from a legal perspective? Yeah, in fact, I see two streams, right? So you have one educating and getting them to try to make sure that they're getting paid and how it goes. Most of the technology company want to control their ecosystem. Actually, the biggest risk I see for most ISON agents when they're negotiating is uh, is giving the farm away for free because they'll bring in the knowledge. They'll teach these guys how to make money. And if you don't do your uh, partnership agreements right, these guys could turn around and displace you and suddenly they launch their own program or they get acquired by PE firms or somebody who says, you know, in fact, I have a few clients that have experienced this where, you know, they teach this technology company, integrate payments, do everything else. And once they get acquired, the first thing that the new owner does ends the contract. I don't want to do business with you. I'm going to do it directly. So that is a risk. It's a benefit where you're coming in as a consultant, but it's also very important to also realize that you are actually complementary on this specific deal, but that partner that you are bringing on your table could most likely become your competitor. So things like circumvention and, and, and how you can protect your relationships going forward becomes very important because the knowledge you give them, that's your intellectual property. That's your trade secrets. You are teaching them how they can make money. Now, as you are teaching them to do it, if you are not contracted the right way, if two years down the lane, they decide, you know what, this guy only gives me 40%, 50%, 30%, whatever the percentages are. Uh, and, you know, I just got a call from big ISO ABC who's going to give me 80% and do exactly what this guy does. They're not going to hesitate to cut you down because suddenly it makes business sense for them. So you always have to think about that too. Yeah. Great stuff. Well, Charles, I could go on asking you questions for another couple of hours, but uh, we better not do that today. We'll have to do another interview soon. But um, if you would, though, I'd love for you to share with our audience for those that listen to this and said, wow, like maybe it is time for me to take a look at that agreement. Maybe it is time for me to rethink some of these relationships. Um, How can they reach out to you? How can they learn more about Bashota Law? Yeah. So the, the first thing I always say uh, and the way I engage with my clients is, you know, you you, you can reach me through my website, uh, um, dot, um That is B-I-S-H-O-T-A-L-A-W.com. Uh, schedule some time. I normally do complimentary, you know, 30 minute intro to just learn about your business, what I do. I can we, we can talk about that. I'm always a student of what is going on in a space. So learning what people are doing is great. Giving them feedback, um, you know, is always a good thing. I look at contract negotiation for me is that's really the base part because the most value any of the ISOs agents are going to get by having a conversation. You got to think of it as you just have your own, not only legal advisor, but legal advisor that can be able to be your conciliar as you're figuring out how to navigate the compliance, your business aspect, just because 
we get to see a lot of things that we can protect you that you haven't even thought about. So don't wait until after you say, oh, maybe I need somebody. Most my rule of thumb is I'm saying when your residuals are hitting $5,000 or more or, and all you're ready to start, um, you know, uh, contracting directly or any contracts you want to enter, it's a good idea to develop a relationship uh, uh, with an industry council that can be able to guide you just because there's a lot of landmines that you're going to be, they're going to be set in the beginning that will hurt you later, not now. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. So again, that was Bishota Law. It's uh, again, B-I-S-H-O-T-A-L-A-W.com. Uh, Charles, thank you so much for taking your time and sharing those insights with us today. I really enjoyed it. I learned a little bit myself. And so really appreciate your time as always. No problem, James. Hey, thank you for your time and party nice seeing you again. Hey, great to see you. Thanks again, Charles. Patty, the, I'm so excited to make this announcement on the podcast. This is the first place I'm going to make it. So Should I do a drum roll? Yes, please do. ISOAMP now has fully automated statement analysis for wow. our users. Um, now, I'll tell you what's really unique about this. So let me, to clarify for those that don't understand, what I'm talking about is if you upload a you know native PDF or a really good scan to ISOAMP for statement analysis, uh, we're actually going to take you to a screen where you're going to wait for a minute. Uh, uh-huh. Well, I say a minute usually about 10 seconds to 30 seconds, but you're going to wait for a second while we try to do it without human intervention. And if we are successful and it passes all of the checks and balances, then it goes straight to the, you know, choose the pricing and write to your proposal. So now um, our percentage right now, we were at 0% fully automated about 60 days ago. Uh, We're now at about 20%. Um, a little bit better than that. So almost a quarter, about, about a quarter of the, of the good scans and PDFs. We get, we get a lot of, you know, people send you us get a lot of crooked, crooked stuff, stuff or whatever. And, right. Yeah, yeah. But the good ones were there and we're going to obviously scale that up really, really quickly now that we have it, you know, now we can focus on improving that. But here's what's cool about it. You know, what's interesting is the fully automated statements are the ones where we've taken so long to roll this out because we wanted to make sure we had all of the checks and the validations in place. Mm-hmm. So if this statement gets through all of our checks that we have, um, right. you can actually be, I think, even more confident. I mean, our team is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. I mean, they're experts, but humans do make mistakes sometimes. Um, it's very rare because we do have all these validations and all these checks. So we, we accuracy is a big deal to us. Mm-hmm. But the full automation literally means we were able to pull all the text. We knew our system has already seen this fee before. Now, remember, we don't use AI for the actual like categorization part of it. That is, has we have hard rules that we've built. Right, so it took right. us a long time because we had to build hundreds of thousands of rules that said if, if it's got these words in it, if it's got this range, but you know, all the different criteria, if it's on this statement, if it's in this table. So this is us saying, we were able to get all the text from this statement. We know what every single one of the fees is on this statement and the resulting information we got on margin pricing and everything did not produce any red flags right? So we never plan to get to a super high fully automated percentage. And we're not trying to get to 90% or something because to do that, we'd have to compromise some of that. There are situations where it's like, wait a second, that margin looks too high or that savings looks too low, where even if it's right, I think it's best to have a human take a quick look at it. Look at it. Right. And remember during our business hours, if it's not fully automated, our average turnaround time right now, Patty, is seven minutes and 32 seconds or something like that. That's um, uh, down from two weeks ago when I believe it was nine minutes. Yeah. So it's it keeps dropping. And it's, yeah. you know, and again, that's when it's not fully automated. When it's fully automated, right. obviously, it's like 10 seconds. So, but 
that full automation. So we actually did, we, we've been running it for a couple of months. I even brought it up on a recent episode where it just meant you got your email faster, like instantly mm-hmm. you get an email that said it's done. But now it's actually within the user interface when you upload it, it's going to say, hey, we're working on it. And it can even give you a little bit of feedback about, you know, hey, we're, we're this one we're going to need or to like have our humans point, take a look or yeah, whatever. Be ready and- right. Right. It'd be cool so, if you could have like one of those little things, you know, I'm on the screen, you can have one of those, you know, little bars going across. Yeah. It's it's something like that. Whatever our developers built, they, they right, I'm sure it's gonna right. look fantastic. So you got great um, but, developers. I'm sure they yeah, they, something cool. they made it look cool. So anyway, if you yeah. want to learn more about that, head over to getisoamp.com, G-E-T-I-S-O-A-M-P.com and uh, check it out. We've got the APIs, we've got the automation. So we still are, of course, going to handle all of the statements, whether it's fully automated or not. But now we do have that full automation. Right now it's at 20%. Obviously, we'll be jacking that up very, very quickly as we now focus on improving the percentage that are fully automated for the convenience of our clients. So uh, yeah, with that being said, let's get back to the episode. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field, with James Shepard. Patty, I wanted to uh, share on the podcast a super interesting uh, conversation that I had this last week, a couple of days ago, with an agent who is, oh, I want to say in Massachusetts, um, one of the states where, um, you know, surcharging is not uh, allowed still. Okay. You know? um, and there's only like three left now. So, um, but, you know, it just brought up a, like a larger thing. And so what happened was, I was having, this was, it wasn't a consultant client or anything, just an agent reached out and asked for some help. So I, I was talking to him and, um, you know, he was saying, you know, what would you do? Cause you know, his ISO is not crazy about the dual pricing thing anymore. And, and really it is actually kind of hard in Massachusetts because consumers have a lot more pushback against these programs there. You got to be more worried about the state government than you do the visa in this case. And, um, and, you know, the surcharge ban is still live and alive and well there. And so I was talking about that scenario with him and, um, you know, we were talking about some practical kind of more tactical things. And finally he, you know, he said, well, what, what would you do? And I said, you know, I said, I'll tell you what I would do. I don't know if you have any interest in doing what I would really do, but this is what I would do. And it, it was interesting because it, it's something that I would really encourage a lot of agents and I to think about, not just in this scenario, but, but in a larger context. And that is if there's something interesting happening in payments, in your state or in your, you know, area, your community, um, why not use that to make some hay with some free PR, you know, um, go ahead and, you know, do you realize like if you, you're a business owner in your market, do you realize that you could go talk to your local state representative for in, in the state Congress, you know, um, if you have an issue with something that's happening, you know, why can't you fight for business owners? Why can't you fight for the free speech rights of merchants, you know? And so I was talking to him about a, a kind of a specific idea and, you know, and, and how to implement and, and all that for his for particular situation. But, you know, what I would really encourage, uh, you know, everybody listening to think about it here is, you know, when we think about fame, fame doesn't mean what it used to mean anymore, Patty. Um, right. To say I'm famous, that used to mean the same thing to everybody. It was, this was a, an actor, it was a performer, it was an entertainer that was well known to a significant percentage of the population at large, 
right? Right. Um, right. And maybe you still define it that way, but but today, because of the internet and and this you know niche marketing and social media, TikTok and all that, right? yeah. There's a, there's a very different kind of fame, and it can be actually very powerful. And that's that's the kind of fame where mm-hmm. you're really well known on one specific topic or one specific vertical. Um, and even within one specific geographic location on one specific topic, right? So if you think about it, I told him, I said, if I was you, I would set a goal. My goal would be that every month that your name and your company name would appear in at least one article in a state publication. That that would be my goal or that you're mentioned on mm-hmm. a news thing or whatever. And then you go out and you share that article with clients and potential clients um, and become the person who is fighting for the rights of merchants in your state. And I said, you know, in two, three, four years, whenever it is, when eventually the surcharge ban is is inevitably lifted in the state that he's in, he is going to be the guy that everyone's going to want to go to. And his company is going to be the company that's gonna, everybody's going to want to go to. Um, and that's what I would, I would actually do. You know, another really good example of this, um, I won't give the I won't give the name of the podcast yet because I don't want everybody to, to flock over to it. That's that's not a good target for it. But um, you know, uh one of one of the ISVs that I own, um, a software company that services a vertical. Um, I hired a CEO for the company recently. And, you know, when I hired the CEO, I said, you know, you've got two responsibilities. One is running the company and the other one is launching this podcast. And, you know, we're launching a podcast and we did our first three interviews so far. He did the first three interviews so far where he's interviewing people who are business owners in this particular vertical. And he just yesterday went to Washington, D.C. to go to a trade show for this vertical. And, you know, he told me how incredible it is, how big of a difference it is to walk up to the owners of these business types. He doesn't go up to them and say, hey, I'm so-and-so and we have this company and we have this service. He goes up to them and says, hey, I'm so-and-so. I'm the, you know, I'm the host of the XYZ podcast and I interview owners in this space. Well, everybody's like, oh, that's fantastic. Like they write down the name of the podcast and oh, okay, well, would you like to be on the podcast? Oh, I would love to be on the podcast. So again, you know, that's fame. I mean, right. it's, we haven't even, it's not even live yet. I mean, you know, I think the first episode airs, uh, actually while we're recording, I think it airs today on this Friday. But anyway, you know, we're just starting it. But the fact that that we are leading the charge, uh, you know, to educate these business owners and to share best practices and everything, you know, that is a form of fame. And I'm making my, the CEO of this company, you know, he is going to be very famous in five years because we're going to have a hundred thousand business owners in this vertical that are listening to this podcast every week. And of course, the company that we own there is going to be the sponsor of that podcast. And, you know, we are going to get a massive amount of business from that. So my point to all that is I would really encourage our listeners to think outside the box, like, and then maybe even try to step outside of that box. Like, Think outside, like way outside the box of what you're doing now. What could you do uh, from a PR perspective? Is there anything going on in the industry in your area that might be interesting? You know, think about this. You know, if you just looked up some research studies about um, mobile wallets or crypto acceptance or whatever, you know, um, the visa fines, even that kind of stuff, you know, do you think that your local paper might be interested in that? Your local news outlet, would they be interested? Is there an angle there for them? Start talking to reporters and, and start, start to get some angles there. Um, is there a podcast that you could do that would be maybe for business owners in your area that just have interview local business owners, you know, become famous, right? Not famous like, oh, wow, I'm going to be the next, you know, Mark Wahlberg, but famous like 
you are the person that people recognize as the expert in your particular niche, maybe even in your little market that you're in. Um, right. and, and that's going to be it. That fame is going to be just as powerful in within that context. Right. And mm -hmm. so you can make a lot of money off of that. So anyway, just want to throw that out there to kind of maybe get people thinking outside the box today. Yeah. I mean, it's a really great idea, James. And you know, it's, it, it, I, I kind of chuckled when you started this because it's sort of, how I ran my career, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I was a journalist, yep. I was doing this stuff. And suddenly it was like, you know what, if I become an expert on one particular area, yep, yep, you know, that is what has, you know, carried me. And, you know, yeah, it, it, it morphs and, and, and changes, changes and, over yeah, time. Sure. But that's what it's, you know, that's what it's all about. So yeah, I highly recommend it. That's really great advice. James. Thank you. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. Well, James, account-to-account -account payments are on a tear worldwide as the um, expansion of real-time payment systems make it, you know, make for faster, safer, more convenient consumer payments. And this is one of the top line findings of the latest World Pay Global Payments Report. Released in April by FIS, but of course, as we reported a few weeks ago, FIS is getting rid of World Pay. So, but I love this report that World Pay, they do it every okay. year and I really yeah. like to clean it. So, um, you know, one of the things that they found is that these account-to-account -account payments are not just P2P transactions. Uh, increasing numbers of consumers are using the networks like Venmo to pay businesses. And um, here are some additional high-level findings from the World Pay Research. Digital wallets are now the most used payment format for e-commerce, accounting for 32% of all e-commerce transactions in the U.S. last year. They're less common at the physical point of sale, accounting for just 12% in 2022. Wow. Um, they have a worldwide digital wallets are growing at a combined annual growth rate of um, about 15%. Mm. Wow, and that's a lot. They're expected to do that through 2026. Wow, okay. Now, consumers may be turning to these wallets, but not necessarily away from their cards. In fact, 31% of Americans fund their digital wallets using credit cards. 33% hmm. use debit cards, slightly more. Hmm. Uh, physical cards are still used to pay for almost a third of online transactions and 40% of transactions at the point of sale. Hmm. But here's the rub. Credit card share of transaction value has remained flat at about 40% for both e-com and POS. Hmm. And uh, FIS expects this will continue um, as cards face multiple headwinds like uh, new alternatives. Think of BN, you know, buy now, pay later. Sure. As well as the higher cost of, of borrowing. Right. Now, at brick and mortar stores, credit cards make up 40% of payments compared to 31% for debit cards and 12% for, for digital wallets and cash. 12% each for digital wallets and cash. And the final point, which I love this, cash may no longer be king. Hmm. 
hmm. but it still has an important role. I was kind of thinking of, you know, we had all this royal family stuff that went on recently, the King's right, coronation, right, yes. right, right. So Cash is sort of like the prince that moved to the U.S. <laughs> Which one was he? Harry, William? I don't remember their names. So I don't like, know either, but yes, I'm sure. I'm sure all you know of what I'm saying. It's sort yes. of like it's still part of the royal family, but it's sort of like a side thing, right. right? Um, but you know, cash accounted, cash spending in 2022 topped 7.6 trillion dollars. Wow, that is a huge market opportunity. No wait, that's cars. is that. Are you saying that's the U.S. or that's, that's no, global? Just, that's that global. global. Okay, right. right. I was going to say, but still, that's still a lot that's, of money. James. Well, it's massive, obviously. Yeah, yes. I'm just trying to. I was like in my head, I'm like, wait a second, that's greater than our GDP. So how does that? But yeah, no, no, yeah, right. Yeah. And you got to admit, you got to think. Probably a lot of that cash is in third world countries and so forth and so on. But sure, you know, even here in the U.S., you know, cash was still being used by 12 percent of people at the point of sale. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too. It definitely um, represents opportunity, like you said. I mean, right. So it's still, there's, right. a, there's a lot of work to be done to get to, you know, kind of the cashless uh, society that right. uh, has been promised uh, off and on, you know? Yeah. The cashless society isn't going to happen in my lifetime. Probably not in yours either. Yeah. But, I wouldn't think. I wouldn't You know, think. it is getting less and less. It's sort of like, you know, and I'll report on this in another week or two. The Fed finally let out its recent payment study. And, checks ever since the pandemic checks have taken a nosedive of course yeah, yeah nobody wants to use checks anymore wow this is yeah very interesting stuff patty thank you for listening to the merchant sales podcast whether you are an industry veteran processing executive or just trying to learn about the payment space we appreciate your time the merchant sales podcast is a joint production of greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com and we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.